What happened at the Cane Ridge Revival? Who were the key personalities? Why was it significant? I'm Dennis Metzler and you're watching The Charge. The Cane Ridge Revival took place in 1801 in central Kentucky. This glorious move of the Holy Spirit happened in the context of a Presbyterian communion service, very much in the tradition of Scotch communion services dating back 200 years. There were many conversions, but also strange manifestations known as bodily exercises. This sacrament service turned revival meeting was not unique, but a climax of similar communion revivals and was the best known of the early revivals of the Second Great Awakening. I am very indebted to Paul Konkin, Professor Emeritus from Vanderbilt, who wrote the definitive work on the subject called Cane Ridge, America's Pentecost. It will be helpful to go way back in time in order to understand some of the theological issues that are relevant to this revival. When we look at the Apostle Paul, we see that his was not a legalistic, moralistic, or ritualistic approach to salvation. It was not based on law, works, obedience, or personal holiness, but rather on the premise that salvation is freely offered by grace through the life, death, and resurrection of Christ. We do not work for our salvation, but we receive it by faith. Paul's scheme of salvation, especially as articulated in Romans, was emphasized by Reformation leaders Martin Luther and John Calvin, which they felt they had to reclaim from Roman Catholic corruption. This understanding of salvation was stridently maintained by Scotch-Irish Presbyterians since the Reformation took hold in their land through John Knox. Scotch Presbyterianism began with the Church of Scotland in 1560 and is still the official state church today. These Reformed people wanted to get as far as possible from Rome and were eager to break off everything from their faith and practice that didn't comport with their understanding of Scripture. By the 18th century, the word evangelical increasingly designated an emphasis within Reformed churches on a crisis conversion, which meant an arduous and often extended rebirth experience, and on an experiential devotional life with a warm spirituality. This is to be contrasted with a more gradual, instructed, or ritualized path to church membership, the catechism and confirmation, and a less experiential and more moralistic conception of discipleship. These two approaches, the crisis conversion and the gradual conversion, represent two extremes, whereas most Presbyterians experience some mixture of the two. The ministers and lay people at the North Carolina, Tennessee, and Kentucky meetings we will be observing were already evangelical in this sense. The Calvinist-Arminian divide plays a prominent part in the development of this revival and the Second Great Awakening. The debate is very deep and intricate, but the main thing to understand here is that Calvinists emphasize the will, choice, initiative, and responsibility of God in relation to humanity, whereas the Arminians do the opposite, emphasizing the will, choice, initiative, and responsibility of humanity in relation to God. And all this is particularly in regard to salvation. Both of these are orthodox positions, but they should be best seen as mediating and informing each other. That is, two sides of a coin rather than one right and the other wrong. Wesleyan, Methodist, Holiness, and Pentecostals are Arminian, while Presbyterian, Reformed, and many Baptists are Calvinist. 
Amongst Presbyterians, discipline was crucial, involving the constant monitoring of belief and behavior among the congregation. Literacy and the development of schools was very important in their circles. Presbyterians had extremely high standards for the clergy, including testifying to a divine calling and to their own experiential faith, presenting university credentials, or passing examinations on classical learning and scriptural understanding. And finally, completing an extensive trial period or internship. In contrast to Roman Catholic hierarchy, Presbyterian church government is based on a council of presbyters or elders at the level of the congregation. Groups of local churches are governed by a higher assembly of elders known as the presbytery. Presbyteries can be grouped into a synod, and presbyteries, along with synods nationwide, often join together in a general assembly. The tradition of Scotch Presbyterian communion services was in place by the very early 1600s. They set up long tables in the aisles of the sanctuary. A large congregation could fill the table ten times with everyone sitting down and could take most of a Sunday. The amount of bread and wine was what would be eaten and drunk at a typical meal. These eventually grew into three to five day affairs. There were often long sermons on Friday and Saturday, or a day of fasting before sermons, communion on Sunday, and a service of thanksgiving on Monday. These were very emotional affairs. In the Reformed tradition, they believed that communion did not involve the actual body and blood of Christ, but the spiritual presence of Christ. They were held annually or more often in each congregation. However, not everyone who wanted to take communion actually took communion. The fencing of the table included dire warnings of consequences for those without pure motives and hearts. The communion services replaced the Eucharist, confession, and penance in Roman Catholic practice. Communicants were first interviewed and then given lead tokens for admittance to the table. These services usually involved churches from miles around and attracted thousands who weren't communicants or even believers. They became like fairs or festivals and became the biggest and most exciting social gatherings of the year. In the 1620s, perhaps in response to attempts to make Presbyterian services more Anglican, revivals broke out in Ireland and Scotland at communion services. They came in three waves up through the 1740s. These communions turned revivals were wild services with extremes of emotion, with people falling down, some remaining in trances, others agonizing over their sins, and many conversions. These gatherings were very controversial within Presbyterian leadership because of the strange bodily exercises. Many spectators came to scoff, for entertainment, to socialize, and to market goods. The label Great Awakening is confusing. It suggests one vast related colony-wide revival of religion. Times of church renewal and a significant number of conversions had happened within various traditions and various locations since colonization began. Most such periods of awakening remained quite local, keyed often to the effectiveness of a single minister. But such revivals were usually contagious enough to spread to at least a few nearby congregations. This happened in the Connecticut Valley after Jonathan Edwards' success in 1734, and primarily because of George Whitfield at several points in New England and the middle colonies around 1740. 
Edwards' published accounts and the networks created by Whitfield led to many other ministers' travels. The connections and scope of revivals in the colonies and in England, Scotland, and Northern Ireland grew to give real content to the title, The Great Awakening. There had been unusually inspiring and dramatic Presbyterian Sunday services and communions almost every year from 1742 to 1797. Yet, a rise of rationalism, deism, Unitarianism, and lower morals overshadowed this. Also, the attention of so many had been distracted by the Revolutionary War becoming a new nation and westward migration. Church membership at the time of the Revolution was somewhere around 10%. It didn't help that some 67,000 criminals were shipped to the colonies from Britain, Scotland, and Ireland from the early 1700s up till the American Revolution. And many pastors were themselves immoral, some of them exiled from England for their transgressions. Immorality was especially bad in the West, that is, Ohio, Kentucky, and Tennessee, where a disproportionate number of males had settled. Cane Ridge was in Bourbon County in central Kentucky. Early settlers in Kentucky were fiercely independent and egalitarian, skilled with a long rifle, and fond of fighting, gambling, tobacco chewing, and horse racing. The region was known for lawlessness, vigilante justice, and Indian warfare. By 1796, life was less chaotic with more settlers moving in. Religious unconcern and laxity prevailed, though Methodist revivals had been strong here from the 1780s until 1792. Most Kentucky settlers had some basic knowledge of Christian belief, were aware of their sinfulness, and feared damnation. Many longed for heightened religious experience, and many parents longed for their youth to know God. David Caldwell was the grandfather of the Kentucky Revival of 1800, of which the Cane Ridge Revival was the climax. He was a highly educated Presbyterian minister, being active in the ministry from age 40 to 99. Caldwell founded an academy in North Carolina where he taught classical education as well as religious studies, with many ministers, lawyers, doctors, judges, and even governors going through his school. He was very influential throughout the colonies and also taught the key figures in the Kentucky Revival. Caldwell also preached at some of the communions in Kentucky during the very early 1800s. John Blair Smith was the father of the 1787 through 1790 revival. His father, Robert Smith, had been converted under the preaching of Whitfield. Robert Smith in turn taught David Caldwell. Later, John Blair Smith took over the Hampton Sydney Academy in Southern Virginia. In 1787, he believed that not one of his 80 college students were serious and thoughtful about religion, and some were actually contemptuous. Smith urged the forming of prayer circles and related congregations to entreat God for revival. After a few students went home for the summer and experienced awakenings in these congregations, revival spread throughout Hampton, Sydney. As always, the telling of the stories of other revivals became the most important catalyst in starting new revivals. From 1787 through 1790, revival was spreading throughout Virginia and the Carolinas. James McCready was the father of the revival in the West, that is, Tennessee and Kentucky. He also went to school under Caldwell. 
He was ordained as a Presbyterian and accepted his first pastorate in 1790 in North Carolina. McGreedy also visited Hampton, Sydney during its revival. He was well known for well-prepared sermons, which were almost forbiddingly grave and serious, but nonetheless led to many conversions. He was morally austere and put high demands on his congregation. In 1796, with many people moving west to Kentucky and Tennessee, McGreedy, full of missionary zeal, was called there because of a lack of pastors. McGreedy took three congregations in Logan County in southern Kentucky. Four other Presbyterian ministers who were connected to each other as Caldwell students in North Carolina followed McGreedy out west in the next few years. These five so-called wild men included John Rankin and Barton Stone, whose names will appear later. All five had experienced the Hampton City Revival of 1787 through 1790 and would be instrumental in the Kentucky revivals soon to come. McGreedy was intent on bringing revival from the beginning, stressing an experiential religion, a day of fasting and prayer each month, and effectively using the four-day Scotch communion service. In 1797, the beginning of revival was triggered by the spiritual experience and confessions of one woman. Through this, great revival broke out in all three of McGreedy's congregations in 1798, especially prominent at the communion services. 1,000 people from all directions came for the Red River communion with the first recording of massive numbers of people falling down under the Spirit in the West. The communion at Gasper River had people coming from hundreds of miles away. Many came in wagons and camped. This meeting became famous throughout the country and therefore religious camping meetings caught the imaginations of all sorts of Christians. Within two years, camp meetings were commonplace throughout the country in other denominations as well. Many Presbyterian ministers and congregations took part in these communion services. Numerous conversions were recorded at all these, but Presbyterian ministers had a reputation for reporting numbers with integrity. McGreedy reported the authentic conversion of a three-year-old, which was very unusual. By 1800, the communion services and revivals were spreading throughout Kentucky, Tennessee, and North Carolina through Presbyterian churches, and a great revival was spreading throughout the whole country though much of it not connected to these Presbyterian communions. The Presbyterian ministers running these were well aware of the history of communion services and revivals in the United States, as well as Scotland and Ireland, some 200 years back. Barton Stone, one of the five, along with McGreedy, was born in 1772, was a student of Caldwell, ordained a Presbyterian minister in 1796, and took his two congregations in 1798, one at Cane Ridge. Stone was young, not confident, not a great preacher, but strong in organization and ecumenical cooperation. Methodists, Presbyterians, and Baptists all were experiencing revival in central Kentucky in 1800 to 1801. Cane Ridge was the climax to the Presbyterian communions, but not the end. A dozen different sacramental services in the region were linked directly to Cane Ridge. In the months up till Cane Ridge, there was more and more religious fervor, with people agonizing over their sin, especially youth. Presbyterian societies or socials met during the week for fellowship, prayer, personal testimony, and sometimes for examination for communion tokens. 
These were instrumental in preparing for revival. Stone went to Gasper River for a communion service in May 1801, and his congregation at Cane Ridge was so excited to hear about it that they erupted in physical exercises, conversions, and extended testimonies. Communions continued in the region, with three of them having attendances of 4,000, 8,000, and 10,000 respectively, with many conversions and many fallen or slain in the spirit. It was finally time for Stone and his Cane Ridge congregation to host the sacrament service from Friday, August 6th to Thursday the 12th. Their meeting house was made of logs, one of the largest in the area, 30 feet times 50 feet with a large balcony. It could accommodate 350, maybe 500 people in crowded communion seasons. The Cane Ridge congregation also constructed a large platform with a tent for outdoor preaching. People began arriving on Friday, and by Saturday the roads were jammed with people, some strangers, some from great distances. One traveler, while still on the road, penned a letter to a friend in Baltimore. He said he was on his way to the greatest meeting of its kind ever known. He noted that, quote, religion has got to such a height here that people attend from a great distance. On this occasion, I doubt not, but there will be 10,000 people and perhaps 500 wagons. The people encamp on the ground and continue praising God day and night for one whole week before they break up. End quote. Cane Ridge members hosted people from neighboring congregations wherever they could, including sleeping in barns. Locals prepared lots of food, but supplies ran low and many couldn't stay at meetings as long as they wanted to. There were sports as well as games for youth and children, but socializing and courting was also a big part of this. 140 covered wagons showed up and the people all camped near each other. It rained Friday through Sunday, so mud was a part of the mix. For rural people, going to camp became a way of creating temporary cities. Stone offered the welcome and Matthew Houston preached a sermon on Friday night in the meeting house, with some lingering all night. Thousands flooded in on Saturday. There were probably 10,000 total for the week, though estimates were up to 20,000. Saturday was a day of preparation for communicants. Saturday morning services were relatively quiet, but the afternoon started to get more active with very emotional responses and many bodily exercises. Preaching went on continually from both meeting house and tent. Amongst the Presbyterian ministers was the wild young Richard McNeemar, who preached like a Methodist, with ecstasy and joy reflected on his face. He certainly inspired the crowds, for the excitement built, and before dark the grounds echoed cries of repentance and shouts of joy, as well as the crying of babies, the screaming of children, and the neighing of horses. When visitors first arrived, they were astonished at the sheer level of sound. Stumps, carriages, or fallen trees became platforms for the preachers as they ministered to different sections of the crowd. Sometimes as many as eight different ministers would be preaching at a single time. By Saturday night, the many ministers involved were in conflict on how to handle the wild responses of so many people, with even McNeemar worried. On Sunday afternoon, perhaps 800 to 1,000 participated in communion, 100 at a time. Lead tokens often had the date and the presiding minister's initials stamped on them. 
but only for those whose sincerity and worthiness had been approved through ministerial examination. People served each other the bread and wine. At least 10 Presbyterian congregations worked together, but many Methodists and Baptists were also present. Only Presbyterian ministers presided over communion. 18 Presbyterian ministers preached while at least four Methodist pastors and one black pastor preached. Presbyterian sermons were carefully planned and developed while the others were more impromptu. By Sunday, news had spread and therefore the majority of people attended as spectators of all classes, including many slaves. Many did come out of a sense of guilt and need for God, but others for entertainment. Many simply had their hearts set on gambling, drinking, carousing, and sexual encounters. One critic claimed that there were more souls conceived than converted. Falling was the most common bodily exercise while others only experienced lightheadedness, weakened knees, or groaning. Those who fell experienced varying levels of consciousness and according to Paul Konkin, some experienced something like a grand mal seizure, hysteria, or coma, one as long as nine days. These are the same sort of manifestations we still see today at revivals. Some area of the grounds look like a battlefield with bodies lying around. As many as 1,000 may have been slain in the spirit by the end. Almost as prominent as falling were various convulsive bodily movements known as the jerks, which included rhythmic dancing, rolling like logs, and somersaulting, and many more. Like falling, these dated from at least early Scottish communions 200 years previous. Certainly at later meetings, and possibly at Cane Ridge, some people got down on all fours and barked like dogs. Many participants later attested that both falling and other bodily movements were often quite embarrassing and totally involuntary. Imagine a large congregation, a witness wrote, quote, assembled in the woods, ministers preaching day and night, the camp illuminated with candles, on trees, at wagons, and at the tent, persons falling down and carried out of the crowd by those next to them, and taken to some convenient place where prayer is made for them, sonic psalm or hymn suitable to the occasion sung. If they speak, what they say is attended to, being very solemn and affecting. Many are struck under such exhortations, but if they do not recover soon, praying and singing is kept up. Alternatively, and sometimes a minister exhorts over them, for generally a large group of people collect and stand around paying attention to prayer and joining in singing. Now, suppose 20 of these groups around, a minister engaged in preaching to a large congregation, in the middle, some mourning, some rejoicing, and great solemnity on every countenance, and you will form some imperfect idea of the extraordinary work. End quote. A minister noted that some of the people who were down eventually felt comfort, or in their terms, got through. Others never did. Those who succeeded often arose with shouts of joy and then began their own exhortations. One minister described the awesome scene, quote, Sinners dropping down on every hand, shrieking, groaning, crying for mercy, convoluted, professors of religion, praying, agonizing, fainting, falling down in distress, for sinners or in raptures of joy. Some singing, sonic shouting, clapping their hands, hugging, and even kissing, laughing, others talking to the distressed, to one another, or to opposers of the work, and all this at once. No spectacle can excite a stronger sensation. 
and with what is doing, the darkness of the night, the solemnity of the place, and of the occasion, and conscious guilt, all conspire to make terror thrill through every power of the soul and rouse it to awful attention." End quote. The sheer confusion sometimes interfered with the outdoor preaching. Small groups joined in prayer or in loud hymn singing with singing the activity which most often affected an audience. More conventional shouts, groans, and holy laughter joined with a near babble of speech, some incoherent, perhaps speaking in tongues, though apparently not recognized as such. Some experienced heavenly fragrances. The endless activity never quite ceased going around the clock. Fatigued ministers were continually in demand to attend the slain, to pray with the penitent, and to calm the hysterical. In the crowd was a mother standing with her two teenage daughters, hearing of the deadly consequences of sin. The two daughters were suddenly seized with conviction, cried out from the depths of their souls, and fell to the ground like corpses. The mother tried to wake them, but it was an hour later when one screamed, Mercy, Lord, mercy! She then fell back into her trance-like state. Both girls lay there motionless for hours upon the ground with the most awful look of terror upon their faces. They eventually came to and were filled with peace and joy. Precious Jesus, one shouted as she rose to her feet. She was filled with such fire and zeal that she began to preach the gospel to many who had gathered around her. In the crowd was a local physician who had come to Cane Ridge out of curiosity. He joked to a young woman that should he become affected, she would have to make sure that he didn't hurt himself on his way to the ground. As he mocked, he became more and more uncomfortable. Soon it was too much for him to handle, and he ran off into the woods. He didn't make it far before he too was struck down. He lay there on the ground until he fully submitted his life to the Lord. But most impressive of all to many spectators were the exhortations. Women, small children, slaves, shy people, illiterate people, all exhorted with great effect. Observers marveled at their eloquence, their deep feeling, and often their seemingly supernatural understanding of Scripture. Some believed the newly converted enjoyed the gifts of prophecy, while critics often believed them possessed by demons. An observer noted a seven-year-old girl who mounted a man's shoulders and spoke wondrous words until she was completely fatigued and apparently asleep. A person in the audience suggested that the poor thing had better be laid down. The girl roused at the suggestion and said, Don't call me poor, for Christ is my brother, God my father, and I have a kingdom to inherit. And therefore do not call me poor, for I am rich in the blood of the Lamb. End quote. Some apparently pious Christians often became insecure about their own salvation because of the explosive experience of children or neighbors. Their sentiment was, it never happened that way to me. William Burke, a Methodist minister, denied access to the tent and meeting house set up his own preaching station, which became the most tumultuous of the four centers of activity. Dozens of organized and semi-organized prayer circles developed all over the camp. Critics ranged from professed Christians who rejected an evangelical or crisis conversion approach to salvation, all the way to avowed rationalists or deists and a few atheists. Yet, ministers present referred to deists and atheists who surprisingly often fell with other sinners, and people with no religious training or confessional tradition were as vulnerable to the bodily exercises as anyone else, but were then ill-equipped to make sense of it all. 
The exercises affected politicians, upper-class people, influential members of society, and educated Presbyterian ministers, though women tended to be more affected by the exercises. Though the exercises got the most attention, the ministers were far more concerned with authentic transformation and conversion. Many believers and unbelievers alike experienced great grief and agony over their sinful state, yet in the end experienced great joy. Barton Stone estimated between 500 to 1,000 conversions took place throughout the week at Cane Ridge, a large number of them being youth. According to author Paul Konkin, the physical exercises at Cane Ridge were culturally conditioned. To some extent, they were learned and contrived, even when they seemed to be completely involuntary. Ministers could employ certain techniques, hymns, verbal images, telling of previous revival stories, and sermonic devices which helped push audiences toward an ecstatic frenzy. On the other hand, disapproving ministers could at least moderate, if not prevent, such exercises. Critics considered it emotionalism or even demon possession. Still, others believe these bodily exercises and other manifestations to be the work of the Holy Spirit and claim the same Spirit at work in manifestations like these today. The key evidence for these revivalists is the personal transformation and the fruit of the Spirit that accompany these exercises. Perhaps it is best to understand the exercises as phenomena that are generated both by the initiative of the Holy Spirit as well as psychosocial conditioned behavior. The same physical expression in one person may be tied to true Christian conversion and transformation, while in another, no redemptive effects may be experienced. Even though there were many other sacramental services during this time, Cane Ridge came to symbolize the great revival of 1797 through 1801, and eventually for some, the Second Great Awakening. In a six-month period in the central counties of Kentucky, the five- to seven-day communions, with a growing number of families camping on the grounds, attracted a cumulative attendance of over 100,000 people, even by conservative estimates. That does not include all the smaller revival meetings at Baptist and Methodist gatherings. Highly regarded Presbyterian minister George Baxter had traveled from the East and found Kentucky, quote, the most moral place he had ever been in, for he heard no profane expressions, everyone was amiable and benevolent, no private quarrels remained, and a religious awe seemed to pervade the country." End quote. As Presbyterian ministers continued to confer about controversies surrounding the revival, almost all agreed that they had to be very cautious in interpreting the meaning of physical exercises. One pattern, almost a rule, was that early in an individual's experience of the exercise, almost everyone underwent an overwhelming sense of sinfulness and in various ways cried out for mercy or help. For many outside the church, the rationalists, deists, or libertines, the often extended period of acute distress led, sooner or later, to at least temporary relief or a feeling of comfort. Afflicted persons interpreted this state as conversion, but Ministers noted that people often quickly lost this confidence and thus typically had to go through three or four such agonizing experiences before gaining an enduring sense of comfort. For uncomprehending spectators and blatantly immoral people who sometimes jerked or fainted, the emotional experience did not seem to have any enduring spiritual meaning at all. While Presbyterians were divided over exercises, Methodists condoned if not stimulated them. 
exercises often occurred not only at church gatherings, but at home, in the field, and at other workplaces. In the aftermath of Cain Ridge, much of the style, practice, and doctrine that ensued was often at odds with Presbyterian norms, especially the priority given to divine election in conversion. The Presbyterian Reformed Calvinist view of election strongly put the emphasis on God's will and choice, whereas the revivalists were leaning more towards a Methodist, Arminian, Wesleyan view, which put more emphasis on human will and choice in conversion. The Presbyterian revivalists were essentially becoming more Arminian. Together, these differences almost shattered the Presbyterian Church in the West. Yet, Methodist and Baptist membership grew significantly. As revival spread, the communion services after Cane Ridge in the Carolinas and in Georgia in 1802 matched those of central Kentucky, yet they involved as many blacks as whites and significantly more Methodists and Baptists. Throughout Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, there were also communions turned revivals in Presbyterian churches. People in New England, New York, and New Jersey had information about revivals in Kentucky, but probably weren't influenced by them significantly. They nonetheless had their own revivals in mostly Congregational and Baptist churches, though bodily exercises were not prevalent. In Kentucky, Presbyterian members quickly declined in number a few years after Cane Ridge, but Baptist and Methodist numbers soared. Even the most bitter Presbyterian ministers confessed that, however much confusion and heresy reigned, the number of avowed rationalists, deists, and skeptics shrunk towards zero. The revivals also raised, at least briefly, the social conscience of Christians. Anti-slavery sentiment became almost synonymous with revival. The most fervent evangelicals also fought earliest and hardest for temperance reform, that is, laws against drinking, and struggled with eventual success to gain strong Sabbatarian legislation, that is, Sunday restrictions. Non-communion camp meetings and missionaries were also key means of spreading the revival. The revival atmosphere after 1801 increased the pressures on the professional clergy. The exercises quickly became the whole focus of attention. They became the evidence of an authentic revival, the mark of ministerial success. Some pastors would resort to artificial means, tricks, and manipulations to get more exercises. Robert McNeemar was the wildest, preached the most stirring sermons, was most Arminian, encouraged the most exercises, and therefore was the most visible leader of the Presbyterian revivalists. Stone, McNeemar, John Rankin, and two other pastors broke off from the Presbytery in Kentucky and formed their own Presbytery, only to dissolve that nine months later and become fully Arminian. Notice that these five pastors are not the five wild men spoken of previously, though both groups do include Stone and Rankin. These pastors and churches were known together as the New Lights. McNeemar promoted prophecy, exorcisms, and visions, while Stone did not. McNeemar and John Rankin went on to join the Shakers in 1805, a group which prohibited marriage, promoted pacifism, communal living, and ecstatic experience, and whose founder, Ann Lee, was considered the Messiah. Stone and the other two went on to start the Christian movement that would later merge with the Campbells and produce the Christian Church, Church of Christ, and the Disciples of Christ. McNeemar's excesses were an embarrassment to many in the New Lights, so his departure to the Shakers actually aided the development of the Christian movement. 
Stone espoused a simple, egalitarian, and primitive form of Christianity based on that practiced by the first New Testament churches. This movement was eventually known as the Restorationist Movement, or the Stone-Campbell Movement, in that they wanted to restore the New Testament church. Stone not only challenged any form of ecclesiastical authority, but also most ministerial prerogatives. They stopped ordaining ministers, condemned the ministerial elite in existing churches, abolished contractual forms of payment for ministers, and demanded that called ministers live simply non-worldly lives. They drastically expanded the role of lay people in their congregations and in many cases allowed new leadership roles for women. Stone's churches were non-creedal, letting the New Testament be sufficient for doctrine and practice. Stone thoroughly rejected Calvinism to embrace Arminianism. Though Stone was less orthodox on some key doctrines, he was nonetheless mild-mannered, reasonable, and ultimately more concerned with unity. Therefore, some of his key teachings were not accepted by the movement. The Cane Ridge Revival was one of the most significant revivals in the Second Great Awakening, which is dated somewhere around 1790 to 1840, though many date it somewhat later. We have traced its origins in the South and West, yet also had had origins in New England around the same time. In the Northeast, it was not nearly as emotional or demonstrative, but more intellectual, with the president of Yale being a strong advocate. Yet, it was marked by earnestness in devotion and living, with many experiencing conversion and church attendance increasing significantly. The Second Great Awakening also helped spawn groups that were unorthodox in doctrine, such as the Mormons, Jehovah's Witnesses, and Seventh-day Adventists. Charles Finney led revivals in the northeastern states in the 1820s that had comparable fervor to Kentucky revivals, though not communions, including many people slain in the spirit. With westward expansion, Methodist and Baptist growth skyrocketed. The awakening continued to be associated with the fight against slavery and alcohol. And because of the heavy involvement of women working for temperance, the roots of American feminism can be seen in the Second Great Awakening. During this time, we also see the rise of the American Foreign Missions Movement, with both denominational and non-denominational mission societies being founded. As we work and pray for revival today, it is essential to understand how God has worked in the past. Revival needs to include repentance from sin, ongoing personal transformation, enduring experience of God's presence, vital life together in the church, urgent missiological emphasis, and the makeover of social mores and structures. I'm Dennis Metzler, and you've been listening to The Charge. I've got a lot more podcasts, so please check them out. Peace to everyone.